Our scripture reading this morning comes from Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 to 24. Uh, Speaking of Adam and Eve, the scriptures say, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat, And live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Thank you, Jim, for reading. I want to start with a word, and that word is counterintuitive. So the word counterintuitive from like the Oxford Dictionary would, would say counterintuitive is something contrary to intuition, contrary to a common sense expectation, but often nevertheless true. So you hear in that almost an element of surprise. So this is what was expected, but what was expected, it seems to go the opposite direction. Doesn't seem, doesn't seem like it matches your intuition of what you would normally expect. I want you to hold that word because as we read to the end of Genesis 3, like Jim just did, we feel, we feel some things strongly. We feel the heat of God's wrath, the reality of judgment 
the painful cost of self-destruction and sin. Like you, you read it very clearly. And our intuition will tell us, our expectation will tell us, that if we're going to find a passage that talks about God's mercy and his love and his grace, our intuition is going to say, it won't be Genesis 3. We won't expect to find mercy and grace there. I think our expectation is that's judgment and wrath and curses and some of the worst times. And yet, in a counterintuitive way, Genesis 3 actually speaks of God's mercy and his love, and I want you to see it. I want you to see it today. Because our ultimate goal has been, through this whole series we started a few weeks ago in Genesis 1 and 2, our whole goal has been to know God, to know him. Not just know about him, not just know about the world he's made, but to know him. And so that still is the goal. And in the midst of judgment, I want you to see God's mercy and his grace. Here's where we've been in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2. We saw God's beauty. It isn't just that we've seen the goodness of God. We have seen the goodness of God. But actually, the wording in Genesis 1 is not just the goodness of God, but if I could put it this way, the very goodness of God. Who God is is very, very good. The world he's made, kind of the centerpiece of this pristine garden that he made, the centerpiece of that, are human beings. We've taken a few weeks to understand exactly what God says about how he made humans. And he, we're told we're made in his image after his likeness. We're told that God breathed into us a breath of life and we became a living being. We're told that he formed us out of the dust of the ground. I mean, all these are meant to tell us that God cares deeply. It speaks of us in a unique way. No other part of creation is is spoken about the way we are spoken about. Genesis 1 and 2 are beautiful, and Genesis 3 is really a disaster. It's a disaster. Eve was tempted by a serpent, took the fruit. And it's not even so much that um, she took the fruit and broke some sort of petty rule. A petty rule where, yeah, you get an infraction, or yeah, you've got to pay some sort of fine, some nuisance fine. Because you broke, the, you broke the rule. It's not so much even that she broke a rule as that she broke the relationship. This relationship was one. Adam and Eve could trust God and could depend on God and could enjoy God and could know God. And yet she chose in that moment, and Adam chose right along with her to break that relationship. And that's the pain. It's almost as if, like, I mean, picture just a mirror and picture taking a hammer and just going after it, and it shattered. It shattered. The image bearers and, and everything that we know. And as you read the rest of the story of the Bible, you come to realize Adam and Eve aren't just, what they did there isn't just affecting Adam and Eve. Much like some things that you do that I do don't just affect us, they affect others. They affect others close to us. Yeah, Adam and Eve are at the front. If we read Romans 5, we begin to understand Adam and Eve, what they did in their sin affects the whole human race. We're all negatively affected by that. We all are sinners. And it's not just humans that are affected by that. I mean, the, what, what Jim read a moment ago, actually, if you take Romans 8 language, 
you realize that creation as a whole, because of Adam and Eve, now that relationship, because they reached out to the fruit, that, that relationship is broken, and so humans don't live in harmony in that pristine environment. But Romans 8 says, like all the earth is subjected to futility and is groaning, like the earth. So every time there's a natural disaster, every time there is a famine, every time there's a drought, every time there's a disease, and we could go on and on and on. It's one more clue that something's broken, that, some, that this world's been judged. And it's awful. It's awful to the point so much so that as you read Genesis 3, it's almost the last place you expect for any sort of good news or any, any sort of understanding of the mercy and the grace and the love of God. But I want you to see something counterintuitive. I want you to look again as we walk through those verses. And, and Jim Redden gave us an overview, and I want us to sink into some of these, even phrase by phrase, sometimes even word by word. It does say in verse 8, and they being Adam and Eve, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of, of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid. I was naked. I hid myself. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. I just want you to notice a couple things going on in those verses. One of the things that seems you can imply is that, or infer from this, is that there were these regular walks of Adam and Eve with God in the cool of the day. Did you read that? In the garden, there was this regular walk. And it seems like those walks cultivated friendship and fellowship, much like a walk with a friend would. And now that is actually broken. Now the couple is hiding instead of friendship and fellowship. And the picture is, and I think it's intentionally written this way, the picture is, I don't know if you've ever seen a preschooler playing hide-and-seek, where the, like, they cover their eyes and go, you can't see me, you can't see me, which it's almost like... And of course, like the adults in their lives will play around and, where are you? I can't. There's no game being played, but I do sense there is some... Like, of course God knows where they are. He's not asking as if he didn't know exactly where they are, and yet they're pretending like he can't see them. They're running. They're hiding. God comes and God calls, but they're hiding. There's no beautiful picture of like Adam and Eve so remorseful that they've you know, messed everything up, that they're going, God, help us, please help us. There's none of that. They're hiding. They want distance. They're feeling shame. The questions come. The question comes first to Adam. What is this you have done? And Adam does the double blame game, the double blame in that he blames Eve, right? But notice how he blames her. It's the woman that you gave me, God. So he blames God, and he blames her. And there's no real personal responsibility that you'll find. You don't find Adam taking any of that on himself. Eve only does slightly better when she's asked, what have you done? And she at least admits, I was deceived. But it was the serpent that did that. And so begins the long, sorry tale of every human that's ever tried to shift blame and not own things when we know good and well we've done things that are wrong and we've messed things up. It's intensely sad. 
And it feels like there's just nothing good in this scene. But as I dug and as I read and reread and reread, I had to be reminded kind of in a counterintuitive way. Actually, there is something good, and that is this. If God didn't love us so much, would God have pursued us even after we sinned? There is some good news in the fact that if God did not love us so much, would he have pursued us? I mean, yes, the difficult questions come. Yes, they're sitting under conviction and guilt, and it drove them to fear and shame. And it could seem that's not good news at all that God is calling. But wait a minute, God could have completely abandoned them. God could have completely disassociated with them. They could have never heard from God again. Or they, God could have, and I don't mean to be disrespectful, but he could have played the game that we play sometimes. Well, if someone does me wrong, like when they're ready to say they're sorry, they know where to find me. I'm not, I'm not going to like reach out to them. They know where to find me. They can come find me and, and kind of grovel before me and, and let me know they have really messed up. And maybe, just maybe, I'll find time for them. But you don't see God doing any of that. You see God pursuing them. He's the one that comes to the garden. That doesn't just mean something for Adam and Eve. That is your story as well. That is your story. Do you believe this? Do you believe this, that he comes after you? That even when you're hiding and you're running, he is coming after you. Even when he's asking questions, even when he knows our hearts, even when he knows the answer, even when he he doesn't need another piece of information about you, he made you, he knows you, he knows your thoughts, he knows the intentions of your heart. Still he asks, coming in pursuit of us when we weren't even looking for him. No, no, we were deflecting, we were excuse making, we were blame shifting. And he comes after us, pursuing us in love. This is just who he is. If it's David, who is guilty of horrendous sin, God comes after David. If it's Peter on the very night where Jesus really needed him to show up, and he says, I don't know who you're talking about. Jesus, I I don't know. If it's Paul who is tracking down followers of Jesus, it's Saul at that point, Saul tracking down followers of Jesus to kill them, to execute them as a terrorist would. And yet God found David and God restored Peter and God converted Saul who became Paul. And Jesus tells the story of a shepherd that would be willing to leave 99 and come after one. Do you know, do you know you're that one? Could you let yourself believe that? Could you just hear the voice of God for a moment asking, where are you? It's not asking for his information. He's asking for you to do an honest assessment of your heart. Where are you? Could you respond to God in faith or are you going to just decide, I think it's better that I wallow in guilt. Maybe 10 more years of that will help me. It, it won't. We know that. We know better. We know there's no path in that toward restoration and wholeness. Or maybe you tell yourself, you know, I, I know I've messed up, but I promise this time for real, I'm going to do better. I'm going to do better. As if by saying it, it's going to happen when you and I both know I can make all the promises of future obedience. God, I mean it this time. I won't do that. I won't do this. As if there won't be some point in time where temptation will be so strong and I will find myself returning to the same mess that I've gone after before. See, God doesn't need your promises of future obedience. 
and in your running and in your hiding. This is the God who tracks you down. I'm telling you, your hope does not need to be in yourself. And if God didn't love you, he could have just stepped out of your world completely. But something in your heart may be moving to remind you, no, no, he always has had your number. He's always cared deeply. I see mercy. It's counterintuitive, but it it is mercy. Now, we, we keep reading verse 14. It says that the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Curse are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you'll go. Dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put, God speaking, I will put enmity or hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the serpent gets cursed, which is the opposite picture in Genesis 1. Genesis 1, it's animals are blessed in Genesis 1. Human beings are blessed in Genesis 1, but now... Instead of blessing, which in many ways is like the, all the benefits of heaven localized right now, that's blessing. What curses seem to be is all the horrors of hell localized right here. It seems to be living in a curse, like all the abandonment, all the futility, all the separation localized right here. The serpent gets cursed. Dust is meant like you're going to crawl in the dust. It's meant to be you'll be humiliated above everything else. And none of this sounds loving and merciful until you realize this. If God didn't love us so much, would God have promised to deal so severely with our enemy? If God didn't love you so much, would God have dealt so severely with our enemy? God made a promise in Genesis 3.15. As a matter of fact, theologians will call it the first gospel, like the first good news. God promises to crush or to bruise, like to bruise the serpent's head, meaning the the serpent will not survive that. The serpent, as a stand-in for our enemy, the devil, will be crushed. It it does say, yes, there's going to be a struggle. There are going to be spiritual descendants of the serpent, and there's going to be physical descendants of Adam and Eve, and they're going to be locked in a life-or-death struggle, locked in war tells us, yes, you have an enemy. The rest of scripture will fill that out. Our enemy is called the prince of the power of of this world, called the God of this world, called our adversary, called our enemy, our accuser, an angel of light, the one who can blind us to the truth, a thief, the one who opposes and slanders and tempts and condemns and accuses. And this passage says he is guaranteed for destruction. Complete elimination. His head is crushed. Most Christians reading this for 2,000 years now have, have appreciated that is pointing us to what Jesus did, pointing us even as Nick, as we sang a moment ago, our, our Savior bled, but in that, in his bleeding, he actually destroyed, he rose from the dead and in rising from the dead, destroyed the works of the devil. This is the way John, the apostle John says, the son of God was revealed for this purpose. Jesus was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. Hebrews 2 says this, now, since the children 
have flesh and blood in common. Jesus shared in these so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. God deals with our enemy. The alternative is, God says, you want to listen to the devil, you just, you just fend for yourself. And we would be outmatched. We would be deceived and we would be destroyed because the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And yet this is the first sign of promise that our enemy will be destroyed. Have you put your faith in Jesus? I have no desire to give the devil more credit. I have no desire to give him any more attention than necessary. But when you think of the chaos and the confusion and the spiritual difficulty and the harmful things that our spiritual enemy designs and desires for us, to hear he will be crushed and destroyed, to know that one issue you will not ever have in eternity is this enemy. When I think about what that means, when I think about how many lives are ruined, and maybe you feel like, man, Curtis, my life has been almost ruined, almost ruined by addiction or almost ruined by abuse. And it, it only, it, Curtis, it seems like it's satanic or demonic. And, and to know those, those things are real. They have a real impact and can have a real hold. And, and maybe the question you ask is, can I be delivered? Or is my life just going to be served up for destruction? And then I'm reminded of Jesus showing up, yes, with compassion, but also with power and how often he delivered. And could you taste the, could you taste today the fact that Christ has defeated, is defeating, and will defeat your enemy, my enemy? Could you pray to be freed today? Do you think God would free you? I do know this. Jesus said those who the Son sets free are free indeed. I would love for us to know that freedom. I hear grace when I hear the enemy's going to be destroyed. His head's going to be crushed. I hope you hear grace, even if it's counterintuitive. There is more, more going on in this passage. In verse 16, so again, the fallout, we're, we're reading of the fallout of what happens with this one decision, and, and sometimes decisions have this kind of dark fallout. It, to the woman, he says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing and pain you shall bring forth children. That word pain is going to come up several times. Your desire, we contrary to your husband, some say for or against, it's definitely set up to be adversarial. He shall rule over you. Verse 17, to Adam, he says, because you listened to the voice of your wife and you ate of the tree when I commanded you not to eat of it, cursed is the ground because of you. So you were supposed to work the ground. Now it's going to be cursed in pain. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles that shall bring forth uh, for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. And by sweat of your face, you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken for your dust. The dust you shall return. You read the word multiply and you're realizing, I haven't heard the word multiply since chapter one when actually humans were told, be fruitful and multiply. But now it's not just that there are more humans and Human beings are filling out this universe, this world, this planet. Now actually what's multiplied is pain. God speaks to Eve and says, in pain you will bring forth children. 
And the words are interesting because the words point to not just like the moment of delivery and that that would be painful, but actually that bringing humans into this world is going to be a painful thing. As much as God has created the family, as much support as we might get from our family, we also realize some of the most hurtful, difficult things we ever deal with are family things. In pain, in childbearing, in raising children. How many moms even this week felt the weariness, sometimes the futility of like pouring your life out for children and asking yourself, is this going, is this really going anywhere? Just reminding us like something is off, something is not right. This, if you feel like this isn't the way it was meant to be, you're absolutely right. We're reading what's the fallout. And, and notice it also says, instead of like there being a partnership between husband and wife, which was like supposed to be a, an intimate partnership, now it's a poison partnership. Instead of there being like mutual goals, now it seems set up adversarial. The desire is contrary to the husband. The husband will rule over the wife. You don't find that language in Genesis 1 and 2. You do find roles and you do find responsibilities. But you don't find domination or exploitation or chauvinism. Somehow a zero-sum game. For her to win, he's got to... I mean, you don't find any of that, but now you do. You find the brokenness, the basic relationship of humans supposed... We're supposed to be together. That falls out. And now it all does too, doesn't it? It's not just a relationship between husband and wife. It's like all the relationships begin to disintegrate at times, degenerate at times. And thinking of futility, even work is like the idea of work wasn't cursed originally. Work was going to be a good thing. God put the man and the woman in the garden to work it, to keep it, to protect it, to cultivate it. But now even that is like now it's only going to be in pain. You're going to, you're going to sweat when you work now. It's not going to be something that brings a lot of fulfillment, but internally there's, I think you could read in there stress and fatigue and like, what's going on? I, I, you feel like you're, you're doing everything you can and it's still not enough. You sweat, but also there are thorns and there are thistles. So it's internally you sweat and externally you're having to deal with these thorns and thistles. You try to build something up and it, it's like you try to create something. You try this fear of influence God's given you, whether it's work or a team or a class, and like you're trying to do your best, and it seems like there are forces working counterproductively there, and you're going, like, I'm doing the best I can. And it seems like there are thorns and thistles. I, I'm, I'm feeling stress. I'm feeling fatigue. I, it, it's causing me. I, I, I don't think it matters even so much whether it's agrarian or blue-collar or white-collar. I mean, we just all know things begin to unwind, and here we see why. How can this be? Maybe you're thinking, Curtis, it's a stretch to find any good news there because we're sentenced to live in this world that's broken and it's painful. One question that kept coming back to me this week is this, if God did not love us, would God have made living with the effects of sin so hard if he could care less about us? Could he not have just gone, you're living in a broken world and you're not ever going to feel that it's broken. You're just going to kind of make the best of it. It's going to be all right. You're going to have a relatively comfor- comfortable life. 
If God knows when, like, no, no, that's just broken. This is not what I intended for you. I created a world that's very good. I want to bring, I'm, I'm restoring a world. I'm going to make things new one day. I want you to know the beauty of that world, not, not think this is all there is. And so it becomes painful. It does become difficult. I, I can imagine a doctor. I mean, if a doctor has the x-rays and the CAT scans and knows there's a problem, is he doing anybody any favors by just trying to pretend everything's okay? Making someone comfortable, but not dealing with the reality of like, no, this is going to be hard and this is going to be difficult. But I'm going to tell you the truth and the treatment's going to be rough. Because everything in your body's not okay. But here's the plan and here's what we're going for. Here's the future I envision if the treatment works. If a doctor with all of our limitations that humans have, if a doctor would know it's right to shoot straight, I'm right to let us know we're sick. Then maybe there are things in this life that are going, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Surely there's something better. I don't know how many gravesides I've stood by. I don't know how many funeral services I've conducted. I don't know how many counseling appointments I've had. Where you, you walk away feeling pretty empty. Going, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And every time that happens, it is a, a trigger. I'm not saying this answers every question about suffering that I have. It doesn't. But every time I realize, like, yeah, this is not the way it's supposed to be, it makes me long for something so much better. This light momentary affliction, Paul would say, is preparing us for, like, this far greater weight of glory. That's, what, that's what's happening. Romans would say this. Romans say, we, we have the Spirit, but we're groaning because we're waiting for adoption. We're waiting for the redemption of our bodies. It's signaling. It's not okay. It's not okay. And it's signaling to Christians there's something better. God is going to do something new. And this is not all there is. Verse 22. Lord God says, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. And now lest he reach out his hand and take of the tree of life and eat, live forever, so then God acts in a, in a distinct way. God sends the man out of the garden. He drives the man out. And he guards the entrance. He places a cherubim flaming sword that turn every way to guard the way to the tree of life. It's not the easiest text to understand. Scripture doesn't even elaborate a ton on it beyond this. But what I read in these last verses of Genesis 3 in all of the things that have gone off the rails is how much God cares for us. What do I mean by that? If God doesn't love us, if God didn't love us, would he, have cared, would he care so much about our vulnerability? How do I know he cares about our vulner, vulnerability? So whatever it is with the tree of life that we're not supposed to eat from, whether that's like settling us into this, this state of sin, this state of brokenness and never to be redeemed, never to, never to have something better. God says, you aren't going to be settled here. Your life isn't going to be like cut off from redemption. I will redeem you. It's like he, he separates man from the potential to be locked in in that state of judgment and begins to build hope. Not only does he care about that vulnerability, but he cares about the vulnerability. Actually, God makes something in Genesis 3. Man, it seemed like Genesis 1 was all about God making things, but in Genesis 3, it's a very different kind of thing he makes. It says he makes a garment, clothes of skin, and he clothed us. 
So any sort of I mean, nakedness comes up and the idea is that there would be shame attached to that and vulnerability and you're threatened and God steps in and protects us in that. And so begins a theme in scripture of God being our protector, God being the one who shields us, God in atonement covering us, but doing even far more than that, wiping our sins away, remembering them no more. I could even ask these kinds of questions in another way. If God didn't love us so much, would there even be a Genesis 4? Or would Genesis 3 be where God says, I call it quits with the human race? But actually, there is a Genesis 4 and a Genesis 5. Adam and Eve will have kids. And it will be a long, long struggle. The struggle continues until you read all the way to the end of Revelation. I think in light of all the struggle that we've read and all the bad news and all the difficult things we've seen, I do want you to even get at least a taste of where the story goes in Revelation 21 and verse 4, where God says, at the end of all this mess, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, pain, will be no more. Previous things have passed away. The one seated on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. He said, write, write that down because these words are faithful and true. My question is, and it's not just like a a question I want you to consider sometime this week if you have some time. It's actually an urgent question and that is, do you believe this? Do you know this? I mean, do you know the God that doesn't run from you but runs to you? Have you experienced what it means for his face to turn toward you? Do you know that? Because you can today. You can know that. And you don't have to be paralyzed by the evil one who wants to ruin you. That, he doesn't have to have that authority and power in your life because you, you can be linked to the one who will crush the enemy and destroy him. Like, do you know that for real? This isn't something, again, I want you to consider in your free time. It's something that I want you to consider now. Do, am I trusting in Jesus? Am I trusting in the one that can overwhelm the enemy? You don't have to make believe. Like, you don't have to sit here and make believe that life, well, I guess it isn't that bad. No, it is bad. It's horrible. There are difficult things. And yet in the brokenness, God is the one who can and will make all things new. And he's using the brokenness to make you whole. Only he can do that. That isn't your self-help project. That's never going to work like that. Can you trust in Jesus today so that you aren't left exposed, but you see God moving in to protect you, to shelter you, to relieve you, to cover you? You won't be wiped out. Listen, I'm not, I'm not your mediator between like You and God, I have no magic words. But I do wonder if there's someone in this room thinking, like, I want want the relationship with God to be restored. I am believing in Jesus. I just don't know how to express that, Curtis. Again, I don't think there are magic words. But if your heart is like, I want to trust in Jesus as my redeemer, then I actually want to give you words for that prayer. And you can pray them to a God who is eager to hear, maybe 
had an appointment for you today to meet him. So can I ask you to bow your head? For those that are saying, Curtis, I need, I need God. I know I need him. And I want to place my faith in him. Maybe your words are something like this, dear God, I know that I am not worthy to be accepted by you. And I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. And I've rebelled against you and I'm guilty. I'm sorry. I need your forgiveness. Father, thank you for sending your son to die for me that I would be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me life, new life. So forgive me, Father, please change me so I can live with Jesus as my Savior and my ruler. Amen.